Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, with us on this show is um, Claire Kim, a professor here at the university in political science, in political science and Asian American studies. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, today we're going to be talking about cage-free eggs and um, what that means um, and why it's an issue. Um, Claire, how did you get into this uh, topic? Well, I'm interested in the issue of the ethical issue of how we treat animals as a society. And anyone interested in that broad issue quickly comes to think about the status of farm animals because 98% of our interactions with animals, in fact, consist of our interaction with animal products in food, in the form of food. So the magnitude of the farm animal issue relative to other issues involving animals is immense. And so I became interested in the issue of farm animals generally, and then in the cage-free issue because battery cages, um, which are used to confine hens used in conventional egg production, are among the cruelest and uh, most morally objectionable practices in modern industrial farming. When, when did you come to that realization? Uh, Fairly recently, I teach a class on campus in the political science department on animal issues, on human-animal relations, and as I've learned more about human-animal relations in this society and the issues of how we treat animals, I have become more interested in farm animal issues, as I mentioned, and the more I learned about battery cages, the more I realized this was not something that we should endorse. When you first talked to me about cage-free eggs, I thought that you meant cage-free chicken that lay the eggs, right? Yes, that is that's correct. A, but that's a term now that's used to about the eggs. Correct. Also. Mm -hmm. um, but cage-free means eggs produced by hens who are not confined to battery cages. <laughs> so uh, I guess you can't have eggs by themselves. <laughs> um, that's the whole chicken and egg question. <laughs> what comes first? <laughs> the, uh, is that a big issue in the U.S. now? Or, and did it come from somewhere else? Or was it a European thing, or was it something, some other geography, uh, where geography or geographical origin? In fact, uh, in Europe, they have been talking about this issue very seriously for many years. There are several European countries, including Switzerland, Sweden, Austria, and Germany, where they have banned the use of battery cages. The European Union, uh, so every nation within that union, the European Union voted to ban battery cages um, and phase them out completely by the year 2012. So within five years, you will not be able to find a battery cage in the European Union. So Europe is a little bit ahead of us on this issue, but in the last several years within the U.S., this has be been an issue that has picked up tremendous momentum because I think it's such a straightforward issue. It's an issue involving tremendous animal suffering mm -hmm. and cruelty toward animals. It's an issue that's relatively easy to fix in the sense that we can have cage-free eggs at a cents more per egg, so there's a very minimal increase in cost. And I think it's a straightforward issue that many people um, 
can see that is something we should do. So it has picked up tremendous momentum, and it's very exciting to watch. Yeah, I'm glad you told me about it because it was out of my radar, actually. Um, how um, how did you hear about it originally? This issue, particularly. I think because of the class that I teach, ah. uh, I have a unit focusing on factory farming, on the modern industrial farming, and I educated myself about what happens to animals, whose products we use for food, and that's how I first became aware of the issue. It's cool that you can teach a class like that in political science because usually you think of political science as very kind of uh, abstract and uh, about you know I don't know, structures and stuff, and not about issues like this. Is is that is that a new course that you're doing? I've taught it for several years, oh. and it, I do teach it as a political science course in the sense that uh, we look at the animal rights welfare movement oh, yeah, yeah. as That's a right. social, movement. social movement. We yeah. look at um, laws and litiga litigation and lobbying um, and, uh, around these issues. Oh, sure. um, we yeah. look at protests. We look at moral philosophy. Oh, right, right. So right. It's, it, there are many very um, interesting academic ways to approach the issues. For sure, for sure. Do you bring in um, um, animal rights activists to your class? Or? This, I bring in different people speaking on different aspects of um, animal usage, some of whom would describe themselves as rights activists and mm -hmm. some of whom mm -hmm. would not. Uh, this year we had Joyce Tischler, who is the founding director of um, Animal Legal Defense Fund, mm -hmm. which is uh, the equivalent of NAACP for animals. It's right. a legal um, organization seeking to promote legal change on behalf of the interests of animals. Oh, wow. That's cool. Uh, so on, th on this issue, you, you want to raise awareness. Uh, what else do you, uh, are, you, are you interested in doing with this topic? Right. My, I'm definitely interested in raising awareness, which is why I teach about the issue in my class. And as an educator, that is sure. very important to me to raise people's awareness about the f uh, what happens to animals we use for food, to stimulate some kind of dialogue about what is ethical and what is not and what mm -hmm. we do to animals in food production and in other areas of life. And um, specifically here, I'm interested in having UCI and the university uh, switch to cage-free eggs. Right now, the university, UCI, purchases close to or uh, a million eggs per year wow. and in use for use in residential dining halls and in um, places like the Phoenix Grill. And um, those eggs come from hens confined to battery cages. And I'll, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what battery cages are like so people could understand what is involved here. But so I, with the support of some students and faculty, have mm. been asking the administration for almost exactly a year now to wow. make the switch to cage-free eggs, to stop buying battery cage eggs and to start buying cage-free eggs and to take a stand on an issue. Um, it's an easy thing to do. Sure. It's minimal cost and it's extremely important, I think, for the university to set an example like that. How do you know they're using non-cage-free uh, uh, non -cage eggs? This is based upon my meetings with, uh, over the past year, with the dining services, mm. UCI dining services, specifically the director of dining services, Jack McManus. Is it Ar Aramac or what, what's the company? Aramark is the food Aramark. service yeah. provider. Uh, unless um, eggs are specifically labeled organic, free range, or cage free, 
uh, you can be sure that they come from battery cages because 98% of, cons- of the eggs that consumers have access to in the grocery store, in the dining halls, in restaurants, come from battery cage hens. In the U.S.? In the U.S. And um, those are maybe 285 million hens being used wow. in the U.S. alone. Again, 98% of our eggs come from eggs come from hens confined to battery cages. Is there a high uh, fatality rate for the chickens? Well, there's definitely a very high degree of suffering, mm. both physical and psychological suffering within these cages. I think uh, there is mortality. I'll give you an example. Some chickens, hens, get stuck in these um, battery cages are very barren wire cages with sloped floors. The floors are sloped so that the egg rolls down, the eggs that are laid roll down, and go through a hole in the cage onto an automated conveyor belt. And um, these are very barren wire cages, a little bit larger than a cat carrier, Mm -hmm. and five to eight animals are crammed in there so tightly that they can barely move. And they will spend their entire egg-laying lives, their entire adult lives, in there until they're taken for slaughter. And um, what's important to know about the battery cage is that because they are crammed so tightly into such a small space, each hen having the equivalent of maybe a shoebox of space for her entire life, she can barely move, or move within the cage. She can barely turn around. She cannot walk. Mm-hmm. She cannot stretch her wings. She cannot uh, even lift her wing. The hens cannot engage in any of the natural behaviors that, that make their lives um, feel good, feel comfortable to them. For instance, they cannot scratch and peck in the dirt. They cannot dust bathe. Dust bathing is something chickens do. They rub in the dust. They mm. get dust on their feathers. It's a way of cleaning lice and um, scales of skin and things out of their feathers. They cannot forage for food. They cannot nest. They can't do any of the natural behaviors that chickens who are free, if you watch them, love to do. And so we're talking about uh, intensive confinement that produces great physical and psychological suffering. How do you know the psychological, though? Well, for one thing, (laughs) it's obvious when you look uh, at these chickens. I mean, you've seen some of the pictures, Dan, and, and I encourage your listeners to go to nobatteryeggs.com to look at some of these pictures. The hens in these cages, um, for one thing, we know they're in acute pain because, uh, to give you an example, the wire floors that are sloped and bare, um, their feet become crippled from standing on those floors, and they experience a a great deal of uh, many kinds of foot injuries. Their feathers rub off because they're so tightly crammed in there against the metal bars, and sometimes they'll try to dust bathe even though they have no dust, by rubbing against the wire cages and that will rub the feathers off, leaving bloody spines left. Also the um, beaks, right? They, do they trim the beaks or are the beaks trimmed? They do they trim the beaks because yeah. they want the chickens not to peck each other and mm-hmm. harm each other when they're in, in such intensive confinement. They will tend to do that. Um, they also experience osteoporosis and broken bones in part because they have no exercise. They cannot move within those cages. And because of that, um, we know that they have acute physical pain. In terms of psychological suffering, these are complex, intelligent animals who have Mm. complex nervous systems, central nervous systems like we Mm. do. 
We know that they um, have strong social bonds, familial bonds. They fiercely protect their young. We know by looking at other kinds of animals that, in fact, animals have emotions and feelings. Now, the psychological well-being of the chicken, I think, depends upon her being able to engage in natural behaviors and to have some minimal freedom of movement. If you look at chickens in battery cages, the comb is very pale, almost doughy and white, and usually flopped over. And their eyes really tell the whole story. If you look at a picture, or if you ever should see chickens in a battery cage, I think it's an unforgettable sight because their eyes look so bleak. Mm. And these are animals who um, who are obviously suffering. The only people who I think could look at that and deny the suffering are people who have a financial stake in the you know persistence of battery cage operations. So the the owners, I guess, are the companies that own these large farms. Uh, these are they factory farms? What they call them? What They're factory them? farms, right? So they they would uh, they just want more more bucks. It all comes down to something so simple, which yeah. is profit. Mm. The reason that egg producers stick birds in such tight confined spaces like this is not because they're sadistic or they hate animals or they're sociopaths. It's because they want to make more money. And the reason they make more money is because, imagine this, they can have one large shed. They actually have several on each property. But in one shed the size of a football field, you can fit 100,000 egg-laying hens if you cram them into tiny cages where they can barely move, and then you stack them one on top of another, tier upon tier upon tier, so you're, you're, you're making the maximum use of that space within that shed. And that's why battery cage egg production um, allows people to make greater profits. So that idyllic image of, uh, you know, the farm boy with his, uh, you know, chicken running around and, you know, all the, all the sounds from a farmyard, that's just no longer the truth anymore. That is no longer the truth. And this happened at a particular historical period. Mm. Um, it used to be this idyllic image of the family farm, there was some truth to it. Today, is since the post-war era, <clears throat> during the post-war era, agribusinesses, large corporations have replaced family farms. Post-World War II. Post-World War II have yeah. replaced family farms almost exclusively. Mm. And um, therefore, uh, the, f- what the family farm as we think of it is effectively no longer um, in existence. Not to say that there aren't family farms, but where do we get our eggs, dairy, and meat? It's from agribusinesses, huge corporations that raise and kill 9.5 billion farm animals per year in the U.S. alone. That's a staggering number, really, 9.5 billion. Um, And it's corporations who are doing this. So this image we have, and, you know, I have a young son, so I read a lot of children's books and look at the Fisher-Price Little Barns and... (laughs) <laughs> and watch Charlotte's Web and things like this. Mm. And we get this image, or if you've seen those ads about real California cheese on mm-hmm. TV, mm-hmm. we get an image of an idyllic farm life where it's really a paradise for animals. And note a few things about this image. The animals are allowed to maintain their family bonds. It's usually a mother chicken with some chicks, a sow with some piglets. There are never too many of them, right? There's just a few of them. They run around happily, mm. freely. They um, do not suffer physical pain or discomfort. They have a happy, 
um, relationship of mutual exchange with the farmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is a really a, a, a picture of great harmony of interests between human and animals and of paradise. The modern industrial farm uh, is different and is the opposite of it has the opposite of every one of those characteristics I just named. How many um, how many big corporations own or control this market now or this industry? Well, there's an industry trade group called United Egg Producers mm. that represents um, the um, most of the major egg producers. And um, because they're, uh, we're talking about huge-scale enterprises, there aren't that many of them, the, what's the fastest-growing segment of the market is the cage-free and free-range and organic egg producing. So um, part of the argument for switching to cage-free eggs is that you encourage people who are producing eggs to switch over to producing cage-free eggs and to increase that part of the market until eventually we move to a point where, as a society, we no longer have battery cages. Is part of the benefit to them that they can charge more? Oh. <laughs> they About can earn more? Well, yes. They earn more, right? Yes. They it, could earn more. That's right. And you mean in terms of why do they produce battery cage eggs? No, no. I meant oh. if they switch over to cage-free, wouldn't, wouldn't they be able to charge more? It is. Not? They charge cents more per egg because it is slightly more expensive for them to use um, to produce cage-free eggs because they don't have the stocking densities that they oh, yeah, do in, yeah. in a battery cage facility. Um, so it is slightly more expensive for them, and they do pass that cost on in the form of cents more per egg. But to me, it's a very minimal co- increase in cost, cents more per egg. And what you are avoiding is paying the hidden cost of animal cruelty. And this, uh, what year do you think it became a big uh, thing where, um, and also how much of it goes to uh, goes to restaurants and how much of the, how many, how what percentage of the eggs produced this way goes to markets or supermarkets or whatever? Uh, Cage-free eggs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, right now, um, you said most of the things that you can buy, most of the eggs you can buy are not cage-free uh, in, in the, to the public, to the consumer. That's uh, right. And if the consumer wants to buy eggs that are not do not come from hens confined to battery cages, the consumer needs to look and make sure... The label on the egg carton says free-range, organic, or cage-free. Um, because if it doesn't say one of those, then you can be sure those eggs come from battery cages. How about in a restaurant? How would you know if oh, you're you, eating uh, you know, breakfast at a restaurant? Right. Um, you can be almost certain if it's uh, just an ordinary restaurant, not, let's say, a cafe and wild oats or something like that, that you can, or a natural food restaurant, you can be almost certain those eggs come from hens confined to battery cages. But... You can always ask, and um, by asking, you can convey to the proprietor that you're interested in seeing eggs served that do not involve animal cruelty. How about in Korean restaurants? Do you <laughs> do you get the? I mean, there's always a, a raw egg, uh, some egg sitting there at the table a lot of times. And do you have you gotten any evidence that they are cage-free eggs at all in in in, in these small Korean restaurants around the area? No, I have not. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, because I. Um, I always n- never know what to do with it, <laughs> what I'm supposed to. Um, is it raw usually in, in those restaurants? On, is it cooked? Do you know on the table when you go in to get, um, have c- food, uh, have dinner, they sometimes put uh, the appetizers around and then there's an egg there. Is it always um, uncooked or is it? 
Oh, well, I'm thinking know? of the, the Korean dish bibimbap, in oh. which you have a um, that one's cooked rice right? and vegetables, right? And there is a cooked yeah. egg yeah. Yeah. on top that you're supposed to mix in with the rice and vegetables. That's cooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. But um, the uh, over you asked me something about timing oh, yeah, of this yeah. shift, and it's really happened over the last several years. The Humane Society of the United States is the largest mm. animal protection organization in the country. They have uh, initiated a nationwide campaign called the Cage-Free Campus Campaign, mm. asking universities and colleges across the country to switch to cage-free eggs. It's only been going on for a little more than two years, mm-hmm. and in that short space of time, over 100 colleges and universities have either completely eliminated the use of battery cage eggs or drastically reduced the use. So um, let me name a couple of those schools. Berkeley, very recently, Stanford, Yale, Dartmouth, University of Pennsylvania, Georgetown, Princeton, University of Wisconsin, and the list goes on and on. So I'm certainly not asking UCI to be at the very forefront of the issue, but I hope that we will not bring up the rear on the issue either, yeah. because this is clearly where uh, where things are going. There's great momentum for this. I believe that we will eventually get to the point like the European Union where we do not use battery cages. I hope that UCI will set a moral example, as I think the university should, sure. use its purchasing power for good. Wh- why not approach it at the Regento level? Uh, do you think that would be more effective than going campus by campus in this system? That's an interesting question. I suppose I initiated this here on this campus um, because, because <coughs> I wanted to get <laughs> right. I wanted to raise awareness uh, on this campus. Um, I do know from from the director of dining services that uh, when he went to a UC wide meeting of dining services directors. <laughs> they, in fact, talked about the issue oh, of cage-free eggs as part of um, their interest in sustainable agriculture. Oh. And so I think it is on the agenda mm. at the UCY level. But UC Berkeley has done this. In fact, they've gone beyond going cage-free. You know, bless them at Berkeley. They've actually gone 100% organic, oh, wow. which is a higher level um, than of uh, a higher standard than cage-free. And um, if Berkeley can do it, we can do it. Organic means uh, the feed they they eat. It means that the feed is all vegetarian. It has no pesticides in it. Mm. And it also means that the um, chickens have access to outdoor space. Free range. Yes. And um, we are they're slightly more expensive than sure. cage-free eggs. But we are asking UCI to take, um, again, a minimal, modest step, which is to switch to cage-free eggs. You're not asking people to become vegetarian and or vegan. Even. <laughs> well, no, we're not. We're asking something again that is so moderate and uh, so low cost and so easy to do. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it'd be wonderful if everyone went vegan. But until that happens, um, I think we should, as a society, care yeah. about how humanely we treat animals that we use for food production. And that is something that everybody can get on board with. You don't have to believe in vegetarianism or veganism right. to believe sure. we should not be cruel and inflict horrible suffering on animals for food. How do you analyze the resistance on this campus? You said you've been talking to them for a while. Why, why, the, why nothing has happened? 
Well, first, I would clarify that it's not resistance among students and faculty with whom I've spoken. There's a great deal of support that I can gauge when I speak to students and faculty. Um, we did collect many student and faculty signatures before a particular meeting with dining services to indicate to them that mm. people support this. And I think really, almost, with very few exceptions, people that I speak with, number one, they're, they're horrified that this is yeah. going on. They don't realize when they order scrambled eggs that this right. is what they're participating in. Number two, they think this is unacceptable, that we are a more humane society than this and we're a decent society. And they, they oppose it when they find out the facts. Um, in terms of the administration, the dining services has considered the issue now for a year. I remain optimistic that they will do the right thing, that they will, in fact, switch 100% to cage-free um, maybe not go as far as Berkeley with the organic, but at least go to cage-free. Their resistance, you know, I'm a political scientist, I think in terms of how bureaucracies resist change, and mm. they certainly don't rush to embrace change. But uh, I do believe that that uh, they will do the right thing. The question is, when? Do they, um, is, is, they're subcontracted, right? I mean, this uh, university contracts out to Aramark to do this uh, service. Right. And it would seem to me that the student services or whatever department handles this uh, contract could uh, put in a contract language, say, do this, and negotiate over that. Have you reached people in in that part of the administration, on the people that actually do the negotiation? Or, uh, well, I have one of the meetings I had with the director of dining services uh, uh, rep an Aramark representative was present there. And there are other universities serviced by Aramark who have gone cage-free, including Vassar and I believe University of Rochester. Mm. Um, so Aramark is able to do this and is mm -hmm. willing to do this. It just needs the, the green light from the administration. Um, again, it's something that where cage-free facilities are available in California, the eggs are available. It's something the university has to find the will to do. Now, oh, again, so it's a university, not Aramark, that you think is the stumbling block right now? It is not Aramark. Oh, okay. <laughs> and again, I feel that this is where we are going as a society. I, I a hundred schools already sure. across the country, and the question is, will we set a moral example, or will we be dragged, kicking and screaming, into being more socially and environmentally responsible? Are you planning more direct action? Uh -huh. Or street demonstrations or whatever. Oh, Dan, you know better than to <laughs> ask me that. <laughs> Given that we, I just read in the New York Times that the, the the New York police was flying all over the Europe, keeping tabs of you know nonviolent protesters. Which, um, given your background, shouldn't <laughs> surprise you. <laughs> no, I'm not surprised. And given the hysteria over a lot of this issue, these issues, even with animal rights, that um, that you know people do overreact. And um, I I want to clarify that. You don't have to believe in animal rights to support right. this issue. That uh, there are many people who, I believe, the majority of, of the public, based on polling, they're willing to pay cents more per egg to avoid inflicting this kind of suffering on animals. They believe corporations should not be allowed to pursue maximum profits at any expense. That there should be a limit to what they can do in pursuit of profits, and that that limit should be drawn by us as a society with compassion and mercy. And so 
one needs only to believe that we should not inflict horrendous suffering yeah. to support this. And, and one does not have to believe in animal rights, per se. I've had on the show uh, the people that were organizing um, over Taco Bell, uh, just asking for a few cents more to uh, pick um, pick, uh, pick tomatoes that are put into you know the 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 menu for Taco Bell, which is based in Irvine, and they won. They actually succeeded in getting Taco Bell to agree to paying them more. So it's so the I mean social movements do do succeed, uh, and I'm optimistic. On this issue, especially if you know there's a momentum from other campuses, um, do you see that? Um, is it a matter of getting more people aware, or is it uh, what uh, you think? Is there? Um, I mean, in in your study of social movements, is there a point where it tips over and then people realize that they should do something? That it's, I mean, is just social good. Uh, uh, motivating factor for people to get involved, or is there what what are the factors that get into this equation? Well, now, I, now you're getting to <laughs> more <laughs> academic, right? Uh, <laughs> people's awareness being raised about uh, social injustices yeah. is an important part of a movement succeeding, and no movement can succeed without doing that. Usually, that historically that has not been enough. Historically. Right. We have needed, people have needed to mobilize on their own behalf or on others' behalf to create political pressure. Um, I'm sure you're aware that during the Civil Rights Movement, for instance, um, the fact that the Cold War was going on mm. worked to the benefit of civil rights activists because they could do things to highlight on the world stage the fact that the U.S. was persisting with segregation and racial discrimination at home, and that proved very embarrassing for the U.S. government. Um, the media played an important role in the civil rights movement by showing ev episodes such as the beating of uh, protest marchers on the Pettus Bridge in Selma in 1965. Those pictures went out on the airwaves. The American citizenry reacted, said, this is unacceptable that we as a democratic nation should be doing this to our citizens, and created um, both an influx of volunteers and new money into the movement and great political pressure um, for the federal government to act, and Selma is one of the reasons that we now have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Sure. So it's not sufficient. Um, do you feel that, are you optimistic something will happen this coming year? At UCI? Yeah. I am. I do believe uh, that the dining services director and the people there recognize this as an ethical issue. Uh, I think they need encouragement. Um, and I think people need to be uh, on the campus, need to learn about this issue, become more aware of this issue. I am optimistic. I have a lot of faith in this university. Um, I believe in this university. I would like it to do the right thing, get great press. Um, it's really a win-win situation for the university. It's a question, again, not of whether, I think, but when. And, and wouldn't it be nice to ride the wave instead of being behind the wave? Are they looking for sources now? Do you know if they're trying to find um, a way I, they can get the eggs? Right. With the help of the Humane Society of the United States, so we have identified sources for them. So oh, okay. They, they know of cage-free facilities where they can um, procure the eggs they need. Do you have any statistics on how many eggs are eaten on campus? I don't. You know, oh. the only statistics I have that um, 
were furnished to me by dining services were downplay the number of eggs for a few reasons. They didn't include summer usage, mm. and they didn't take into account that we have projected population growth of 10%, um, and that the, therefore the numbers would go up. But the numbers they gave me, understanding that they're understating usage, um, came out to something around a million eggs per year. So I think it would be safe to assume as we go forward it would be more. That means the university has tremendous purchasing power. When sure. you know you, a, an institution like UCI decides to switch to 100% cage-free eggs, that makes a splash. That sends a message in the egg production industry that those who switch to cage-free facilities yeah, and, and, right. and you know reduce the suffering of the animals they're using um, will benefit. Is there any uh, history of uh, schools switching to another contractee, I guess? Uh, or another f food service because of this issue? I don't know of any. Mm. That doesn't mean that uh, it mm. hasn't happened, but I don't know of any. Because that might be a tactic to say that this other company is willing to do this and can offer a better contract even, or a more you know, humane contract, uh, or more ethical way of business practice. Well, again, mm. I think that it's the university that needs to make the decision because the Aramark representative with whom I met indicated he and his company were willing to go forward. They were oh. ready and willing. It really is up to the university to request, as the Aramark's client, that um, the university wants to move to cage-free eggs. But the, um, so what, what is the reason they haven't taken anything, any uh, step yet? Do you think they're just waiting for other campuses to get ahead of them? Or? <laughs> um, well, Berkeley did. So right, is Berkeley, Berkeley was the first. Uh, working with Aramark or no? Somebody else? That I don't know. <clears throat> um, Berkeley is the first UC to do this. I believe other UCs will follow suit. It's a matter of time. Again, being someone who's a big fan of his university, I hope we won't be the last UC. It would be nice. We can no longer be the first UC. It would <laughs> be nice not to be the last. How, uh, when you've talked to students, has, have they uniformly been enthusiastic about this? Or? They are uniformly shocked to find mm. out what is going on. Again, I don't think the average person imagines the lengths to which agribusinesses are willing to go to squeeze out a little more profit. I honestly don't believe people know, and they're shocked and dismayed and um, willing. Again, polls show this. My own experience talking to people shows this on campus and off campus, willing to pay a little bit more cents more per egg so as not to endorse this kind of uh, animal cruelty. Are, are your students all turning into advocates? <laughs> if only that were so. <laughs> uh, some of them turn into advocates, um, but I consider myself a, a success if on this issue and other issues I teach on, including race and social movements sure. and immigration, if people think critically mm -hmm. about the information they receive growing up think critically about the messages they get from the media, from the government, sure. develop the capacity to think independently, and if they educate themselves about the ethical issues of our time, th then I believe I'm success at whether or not they become advocates. Sure. Yeah, you can't expect everybody to go out on the streets. <laughs> How about the ASUCI, the, the student government? Have you approached them? I have not. Mm. I have um, acted in the hope that the administration would um, do the right thing on this issue. 
I don't seek to embarrass the administration or do anything to um, make them look bad. In fact, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the time when they make the switch so that we can get a lot of good press for UCI since UCI has had some, um, some bad times with the press lately. And it would be great to get a story out there in the media about UCI being in the vanguard, caring about sustainable agriculture and um, animal welfare. Yeah, not a health-related crisis uh, or scandal. <laughs> the, how about the newspaper? Have you approached any of the campus um, publications? And I, along with the president of the Irvine Students Against Animal Cruelty, wrote an op-ed piece urging the university to switch to cage-free eggs, I think back in November, and that mm. was published in the New University. New Year. Oh, good. I'll look for that. I don't read it every day, but every week. <laughs> Uh, how about the uh, the other the other party involved would be, I guess the faculty. You said you talked to faculty. Uh, is do you think do you want to approach the faculty senate or do you, do you think that's too too bureaucratic? I don't. I won't rule out any future actions. Um, again, I thought through one-on-one -on -one meetings yeah. with um, the dining services people that we could do this um, with a minimum of friction and um, public activity, I haven't ruled that out, but um, the faculty I approached when I was in the phase of trying to ascertain faculty support, I'll tell you, out of the 59 whom I approached, because I was working within a time constraints, 57 signed a letter directed to the dining services at UCI asking them to go cage-free. Two people did not sign, one of whom um, did not, did not sign because she was untenured and worried about repercussions from the administration. So really? wow. look at those statistics. <laughs> 57 out of 59 responded enthusiastically, and many thanked me for taking this issue on, and many told me when they go to the grocery store, they buy cage-free eggs only. And the store that's across the street, um, Trader Joe's, does, uh, I understand, uh, two years ago they did agree to um, stock uh, cage-free eggs. That's right. Trader Joe's has taken an important step. They will only sell cage-free eggs under their private label. So all Trader Joe's eggs are cage-free. They do sell other eggs. Um, if you look at uh, grocery stores like Wild Oats or Whole Foods in Tustin, mm -hmm. these stores have gone 100% cage-free. They no longer offer any eggs produced in battery cages. And um, also, I just wanted to mention a couple of other companies and institutions who have made this shift recently, Ben & Jerry's, right, the ice cream company, which uses 100 million eggs per year, recently agreed to phase out cage, uh, battery cage eggs completely. Do they use the egg um, yolk or the egg white, or both? I, wonder I don't know the answer cream, to huh? that. With, With ice, ice cream, cream. yes, wow. 100 million per mm. year. Um, very recently, the celebrity chef Wolfgang Puck has announced oh, right. he will that. no longer use eggs from hens confined to battery cages, in addition to no longer using foie gras, um, veal from calves confined oh, that's to what veal I read crates. About. In OC Metro, there's an article of this, uh, this, yeah, this recent is, issue. This is a huge thing because not only does he have Spago in Los Angeles but and all of the other restaurants, but he is a, a leading figure in the food industry. Sure. He sells... Um, you know, products in the grocery store, for him to come out and make a strong stand on animal welfare issues and say it is important to look at how we treat the animals we use for food. You know, he said that he made this decision 
to mark 25 years of being in business, 25 years of success, and he wanted to make a statement in the world sure. and to do something good. And it's really heartening to see someone like Wolfgang Puck uh, making that decision. And I'd also like to mention high-tech companies like Google, Yahoo, Oracle, Cisco Systems, AOL, all of these companies now serve only cage-free eggs in their corporate cafeterias. And um, we also have city councils within the last year, Newport Ritchie, Florida, West mm. Hollywood, California, mm. and first in line, the first uh, city to do it, Tacoma Park, Maryland, all have passed city council resolutions um, denouncing the use of battery cages as cruel and inhumane and encouraging consumers not to use those eggs. How about federal or state uh, levels of government? Or the courthouse, I guess. If you go to Orange County you know, for a traffic ticket or even uh, to serve on the jury, there's a cafeteria right there. Uh, I'm sure they serve lots of people. Yeah, again, the presumption has to be for the interested consumer that if the, leg, if, uh, the eggs are not labeled um, cage-free or free-range or organic, that they probably do come from hens confined to battery cages. So, yes, the majority of eggs that you have access to as a consumer still come from those hens. However, just within the last few years, you see this tremendous shift in the companies, um, corporations, food service companies, food manufacturers, grocery store chains, mm -hmm. colleges and universities, just an enormous shift, I think, in consciousness uh, that we have to think about as a society the consequences of our actions for other creatures and for the environment. We have to think in terms of social and environmental responsibility. We have to sure. think in terms of sustainable agriculture. There's a growing awareness, I think, thank you, Al Gore, among others, for uh, about trying to live on this planet in a way that, uh, in such a way that we don't destroy the planet. How about the, um, the fast food industry? Uh, is there any attempt to get them to change? It's a good question because they use so many eggs mm. and they use so many animal products. There has been, McDonald's has taken a step um, in recent years to increase the size of battery cages and oh. increase the amount of space each chicken has within a battery cage. Mm. And it has... Um, and it has sort of led the way on that issue. You know, many people believe that that is simply not enough. It's not enough to increase the cage by a few inches <laughs> because the hens still suffer tremendously and still cannot engage in their natural behaviors that make, you know, create their feeling of well-being. So um, the cage-free campaign is really about doing away with battery cages. I think McDonald's showed a uh, concern for animal welfare, and that's important, but I think we can do better. How about uh, companies like Inside Out? Uh, what do you call it? In-N-Out. In In-N-Out in Burger. I mean, they're, they're touting their burgers as uh, more natural, I suppose, and um, it's not frozen and all that. But um, have they been approached, do you know? I believe that most fast f major fast food chains nationwide have been approached. Again, McDonald's took the lead. Hmm. There are some fast food chains are doing better than others. But again, I think um, the standard McDonald's is setting, while it's better than the standard that applied previously, is simply not enough because if the U European Union and different European nations can take a step away from this kind of extreme animal cruelty, we as a society can do that too. Oh, we'll talk more about the uh, kind of transnational aspects of this. Uh, we're talking with Claire Kim, who's a professor of political science and Asian American studies. And... Um, 
we're talking about cage-free eggs and what it means for the chicken as well as for the consumers. Um, this issue of European uh, European community, um, what does uh, do they um, if they banned it in the European Union? Um, does it mean they even the imported eggs are also banned that are uh, it, for, from chickens that are caged? My understanding is that they will that they produce the eggs that they use there. I'm not sure mm. that there is a high rate of uh, importing eggs, and I don't know the answer to whether as to whether um, if they do import eggs, they would be importing eggs um, from battery cage hens. But it is, I think they are absolutely to be applauded for uh, taking this kind of step. And, um, and on many other um, fronts as well, the Europeans have led the way in um, on animal welfare issues. Does it taste better? You said it does taste. I saw a survey where it said uh, cage-free eggs actually taste better. I uh, haven't On one of these survey. websites that I was doing research for the show. Um, I think they would taste better because you feel so good eating it, knowing you're not <laughs> participating yeah. in um, inflicting suffering. Oh, I know. What I saw was an article on some website um, from uh, one of these um, pro uh, cage free eggs uh, advocates, and it said that people uh, were given eggs and they picked the cage free ones um, when they chose. So they, they were, it was kind of a blind study. You didn't know what, what egg you, ca you got. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, yeah. Um, you would think that if the chicken was more healthy and all that, and and especially if they were fig fed better, then uh, it should taste better, I would think, yeah. Um, in terms of uh, Europe, beyond Europe, do you see any uh, other efforts to do it in other parts of the world? No, unfortunately, battery cages are in use in uh, Asia, in yeah. Mexico, in Latin America, in um, many parts of the globe, and unfortunately, there isn't a noticeable movement in most areas of the world toward um, um, the reduction of animal suffering in animal agriculture. Um, Europe um, has led the way, and, yeah. and America is not far behind on this issue. And um, again, one of the reasons that I want UCI to make this switch is because of the enormous purchasing power of the university because UCI can, in fact, by making the switch, participate in and actually create more momentum. When the UCs go cage-free and other schools go cage-free, this sends a really powerful message sure. to people in the society that these institutions, which seek to set a moral example and to engage ethical issues you know, in, our, in, um, in the world, are taking a stand on this. So, the power of UCI to make a difference, I think, is tremendous. It just takes the will to do it. Is there any attempt to go after the manufacturers of the cages? I mean, where, where are they manufactured? Are they manufactured in Asia or somewhere else? Uh, are they manufactured locally, the wire cages? I think the, the effort has to be, the pressure has to come from the consumer because the animal agricultural industry, if you listen to... Um, their descriptions of what they do. They're trying to satisfy, in their own words, consumer demand. Ah. They claim the consumer wants a cheaper egg, mm. and therefore they will do whatever it takes to make a cheaper egg, even if that means inflicting uh, extreme suffering on animals. 
Um, I think that that's actually not true, that the informed consumer right. does not want to eat an egg from a battery cage hand. The problem is that consumers are not informed. And this is a very important issue. Why is it we don't know more, mm. ordinary citizens, about what happens to animals in food production? And there, it's a very complicated, multi-level answer, I think. Number one, we are culturally conditioned. We look at cultural mythology from childhood. You know, if you read the story of the Big Red Barn or you watch mm. Charlotte's Web, and you are culturally, we are culturally conditioned to believe in this idyllic image of the family farm. We believe it's a paradise for animals in which they're happy and that they live that way until they're killed, right, mm. or um, for food. And um, in addition, we are spatially distanced from what is going on, right? We have factory farms out of public view. These are not located in the center of the city and not yeah. just because of real estate costs. The factory farm uh, run by modern-day agribusiness is deliberately secluded and segregated from public view. Um, they will not allow ordinary people to tour their facilities. Animal advocates who want to get footage of battery cages, for example, need to go undercover. Mm. They need to pose as workers on those farms. Um, these facilities will not allow the public in, and there's a reason for that. You know, I remember reading mm -hmm. about one egg producer who said he used to use battery cages, and he used to let people tour his facility. This is very rare, but he used to let people, and he said they came out teary-eyed. And these are not animal lovers, per se, or you know, touchy-feely people, necessarily. <laughs> these are people uh, who go in expecting just to look at things and come out horrified and moved by, by the sight of up to 100,000 suffering animals. And then he, this same farmer switched to uh, doing a cage-free facility, and he says now people come out much happier when they tour the facility. But the, we are spatially distanced from yeah. factory farms, also from slaughterhouses. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, we are distanced, linguistically distanced. Um, we talk about products like um, beef instead of saying it's a dead cow, or yeah. we talk about um, and every the meat comes to us packaged in plastic with almost all of the blood drained, and it, we don't even think. This came from a living, an animal who was once alive. Um, we are misled by ads like the Foster Farms chickens ads or the real California cheese ads, which depict, suggest um, that animals are living on a paradise in farms. And there's really been a media blackout in some ways, you could say. In a sense, media cooperation with animal agricultural industries in keeping the truth from people. You know, there was an investigative journalist, Gail Eisnitz, author of a book, Slaughterhouse, mm. and she went around the country and interviewed slaughterhouse workers and to find out what were the conditions really in these slaughterhouses, what happened, and was the Humane Slaughter Act of 1958 being enforced? Uh, the answer is no, it was not being enforced, but one of the things she found is she took footage, video footage, and she approached 2020 and 60 Minutes, these you know, um, eminent news magazine shows, and wanted them to cover the story of what was going on in these slaughterhouses. And the response she received was, this is too graphic and disturbing for our audiences. Mm. Now that really gives you pause because we are the most violent society. We have video games for children that are outrageously violent. Uh, the, I understand the government is now investigating horror films because there's been such an explosion 
of horror films and they're looking at there's some government um, entity looking into the impact of horror films mm. on teenagers or on children. Um, with all of the violence around us, why would the media say that the truth about what is happening to animals that we use for food is too graphic and disturbing for us? So there, there are so many reasons that we remain ignorant. You know, and truthfully, most of us don't want to know yeah. what is going on with the animals we use for food. It's easier to maintain our current habits if we don't think about it too much. So in some sense, it's a chosen ignorance. But if people are educated, if they do learn about the issues, you know, I see this year after year with my students. They really, um, well, for one thing, they their ideas about these issues are transformed. But for another, they really do learn to think more critically because they accepted what they thought they knew about yeah. animal agriculture all their lives. And once they realize they haven't been told the truth and they find out the truth, they then take that critical thinking and apply it to other things. Is sure. the government telling us the truth about the war mm -hmm. and other <laughs> issues uh, like that? Do you think there's a conspiracy or between the agribusiness and the mainstream media companies? Or is it just they don't want to rock the boat because the advertising money goes to these uh, media corporates, uh, corporate corporations? I think it's the latter. Mm. I think that these industries, the egg, dairy, and meat industries, are multi, you know, trillion dollar industries. Sure. They're extremely powerful. And I think they exert influence. Their lobbyists on Capitol Hill exert influence. Uh, their uh, advertising dollars exert influence. So I don't think it's a conspiracy as much as um, cooperation at some level with keeping the American public in the dark. I did an expose once on uh, in the OC Weekly when I used to write for them about the, um, a meat company that was recruiting Vietnamese uh, workers, and and there was a kickback for every uh, Vietnamese uh, worker that was sent to Nebraska, for instance, the nonprofit agency in Orange County, uh, in the Vietnamese community, that got the that uh, did the recruitment, got like so much money back for each one, and they didn't report it. And so after I wrote about it, they actually banned uh, all, all money going into these several agencies from the county. So the county did an investigation, but nothing happened after that. So I'm not sure what, I mean, I realized that they did, the county was freaked out and they did do an investigation because the, the money that was coming from social services was paying for the recruitment, but the money that was coming back from this big um, meat uh, company uh, was not uh, reported. And so, uh, and they should have reported, I think. But, um, so there are some kind of, you know, uh, spin-offs that may be uh, complicit in some of this, the way this, and all the workers had to stand the whole day. They lived in uh, company uh, barracks, and it was really kind of torturous, actually, for, for, the, for the workers in these industries. But there was a huge campaign to advertise in San Jose and in, in Little Saigon to recruit these people uh, who needed jobs. And, but they were sent all the way to <laughs> Nebraska and had to stand and, you know, and, and the stuff that goes on in slaughterhouses. Uh, that I think the nation did an expose of this uh, company actually also, um, focusing on this particular company uh, that, that was uh, recruiting in, um, in California. So is there, um, so there may be other, you know, people that work at these industries, uh, they may 
are, are the workers at these uh, egg farms, are they unionized usually or not? I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, I, what I do know is that because production has been industrialized in these modern um, factory farms, the in order to save money on space, feed, and labor, everything is automated. Um, oh, so there's no people. Right, there are no workers now. <laughs> no workers. That's an exaggeration, but there are many fewer workers, fewer workers. Yeah, yeah. than there would be. Um, right, and, and everything is set up and structured again, to maximize the agribusiness's profits at the expense of the animals whose every need and interest is um, denied. And um, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who, which is the government entity that supposedly enforces the Humane Slaughter Act and supervise, really oversees yeah. the use of animals in various ways in this country, has referred in the past to animal, farm animals as grain-consuming units Mm. Um, meaning they are mere units of production, mere mm. machines that add value to cheap feed by turning the feed mm. into eggs or dairy products or meat. Um, they are not living, feeling beings, and hence the term factory farm, which emphasizes the... Um, mechanization. Exactly, the industrialization and the mechanization of what is going on. And the, the modern factory farm, in contrast to the idyllic family farm of our imagination is a nightmarish hell for animals. Yes, so I was thinking if there were a group, uh, organized group of workers that work in this, this type of industry, maybe that's another avenue of uh, change that they could speak out. To go back to what you mentioned about the Vietnamese workers, I know that the meatpacking industry in this country relies heavily on undocumented immigrant labor, particularly from Mexico and Latin mm. America. And um, this is where you see a really interesting intersection between the mistreatment, the unethical treatment of animals, and the mistreatment of human beings. Because these immigrants are recruited to come work in these industries. They're obviously not unionized. They are paid extremely poorly. They have no benefits. They are li working in dangerous and horrifying conditions. Um, yeah. The turnover rate is something like 100% in some of these slaughterhouses, meatpacking industries. Um, are they paid under the table? Or? I believe they are. Yeah. And, and that's something that Gail Eisnitz documents so well in her book, Slaughterhouse, mm. which is the toll upon workers in these facilities. You know, if you look at sure. Tyson Foods, for instance, the chicken producer, it's it's always the people who have no other op economic options who are working at these jobs because they're very dangerous and very economically yeah. taxing. And she, she goes and interviews um, uh, slaughterhouse workers who describe the how um, traumatized they are physically and emotionally from working in those conditions. Um, and having to inflict that kind of uh, pain upon animals on a daily basis. And the turnover rate is so high because of injuries mm. and because people just can't stand it anymore. But these are the jobs that we um, delegate, right, to the people in our society who have no other options. And if you're interested in a, the oppression of immigrants, if you're interested right. in their um, and the, in their in the horrible treatment of undocumented workers in our economy, you have to be interested in uh, the meat industry. So it's not just uh, the corporations, uh, I mean, they're not just benefiting from selling eggs, they're also benefiting from uh, a certain underclass that works in these uh, industries or agribusiness uh, that they exploit. Yes, yeah. the, hu the exploitation of humans often goes hand in hand with the exploitation of animals. 
of, of, um, of non-human animals. Do you equate, are you anthropomorphizing uh, animals? On, are you accused of that? I mean, <laughs> I'm just asking a question. I think anyone who has ever said that an animal has feelings has probably been charged with that at one time or another. Um, I think the real danger is not that, that we anthropomorphize animals, that is, that we attribute to them feelings that are really only, that only humans have or capacities that only humans have. The real danger is that we don't understand the continuities that exist um, genetically, biologically, physiologically, and in terms of cognitive and emotional capacities between us and other animals. Humans are animals. Yes. And um, we know from Darwin, and Darwin has been supported by a century and a half of re scientific research, we know that there are evolutionary continuities um, between us and other species and that uh, we do not exist as the pinnacle of God's creation or as a distinct um, uh, species that is um, created to to um, rule over others, but that, in fact, we are very genetically similar to many mm -hmm, other species, mm -hmm. and we have many cognitive and emotional um, capacities in common with them. So I think the danger is that we, in, in um, modern life, tend to deny the similarities we have with other animals, even though those of us who have pets, who, have, who keep companion animals, who have had relationships with individual animals, know very well. I mean, a dog owner knows that his or her dog has feelings. For sure. Um, and his or her dog can think. And so um, these, are, these are capacities that animals have if we open ourselves to that truth. But, but we are often invested in denying that truth. Well, actually, thank you very much. We're actually at the end of our hour. And um, I really appreciate uh, your bringing uh, awareness to this issue. And uh, is there a website or some other uh, contact information that you can give? For those who want to learn more about Battery Cage, uh, battery cages and egg production, please go to nobatteryeggs.com. And for those of you who are interested in helping to encourage UCI to move toward cage-free eggs, please contact me at cjkim at uci.edu. And thank you so much, Dan, for having me on. It was a pleasure, and I learned a lot. Thank you very much. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. And our website is KUCI.org slash tilde D-T-S-A-N-G, where you can find archived editions of the show. Thank you. Bye-bye.